0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, and Welcome to this uh, National Lottery Community Fund event uh, in partnership with the RSA on who gets uh, to imagine the future. It's an absolutely fantastic question, fantastic title. I can claim no credit whatsoever for having come up with it, but I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, the answers we get around the table today. I'm speaking uh, today in my capacity uh, as CEO of the RSA, rather than uh, as head of the UK government's levelling up task force. Although I started both roles uh, yesterday, so this is currently uh, day two. We have some fantastic speakers uh, lined up today. I'm sure going to provide some some great answers to that great question Uh, I've just Now, what I thought I'd do as the kind of warm-up man, really, to tee them up is just say one or two very quick words about why why, uh, we might wish to imagine the future in uh, in the first place. Uh, My general um, timeless answer to this question uh, is because uh, imagination, um, is in some ways the, the base ingredient of all human progress, always has been, uh, always will be. Um, human progress has taken place on the neurological superhighway precisely because of humans' capacity to both imagine a different future and, crucially, uh, their ability to then set about making that imagined future real that uh, has been the wellspring of all human progress. and no other animal on the planet has that capacity. Uh, and that's why uh, every other planet other than hu- every, every the, um, animal other than humans has progressed at biological speed rather than at neurological speed in the, in the slow lane, at a snail's pace, if you like. My, um, my more particular and sort of more time-specific answer uh, to this question is that um, much of modern decision-making, in fact, isn't framed uh, by futurism. It isn't shaped by great acts of imagining. But to the contrary, uh, much of it is uh, blighted by short-termism in the way that decisions are made. Short-termism in decision-making by us as individuals, by corporates, uh, by financial markets, uh, by governments too sometimes. Short-termism that can be uh, contagious uh, and certainly short-termism that can be counterproductive when it comes to tackling pretty much each and every one of the signature challenges facing societies today each of which requires a long-term response a reformulation of the framework for thinking from the climate crisis right through to the widening inequalities that societies face whether financial or ethnic or spatial or generational each of those uh, problems has its roots in what Mark Carney called a few years ago, a tragedy uh, of the horizons, a failure to raise our sights uh, to the horizons. The solutions to these problems won't be found, can't be found using the framework for thinking that caused those problems to arise in the first place. It's gonna require a new framework, a new set of solutions and therefore it will require something of a leap uh, of imagination. Now that leap of imagination might come uh, from the singular activities of brilliant individuals and we'll hear from several of those brilliant individuals as speakers today. More likely though it's going to come from harnessing the powers of our uh, collective intelligence Uh, and experience uh, and insight. What elsewhere I've called uh, folk wisdom, something that when I was at the Bank of England, I made uh, concerted attempts uh, to nurture uh, and to harvest to improve our decision-making there when it came to understanding the economy. Uh, For example, through setting up citizens panels and community forums of various types. But I think that architecture, that general approach as others have spoken about very eloquently, is one that can be applied to a whole range of societal issues. And today's speakers, today's event, are I think so refreshing and timely and important, precisely because it comes to the question of how those same techniques and approaches can be used to tackle today's signature uh, challenge. Uh, Personally, I can't wait uh, to hear what the speakers have to say, uh, and the good news is we don't have to wait to hear what they have to say because I will now wrap up and pass the, the the floor back to Joe to continue. Joe,
0: great, thank you, Andy, and welcome to the RSA. Um, hello, everyone. I'm uh, Joanna Shuker. I'm director of design and innovation here at the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to today's event, produced in collaboration with the National Lottery Community Fund and their Emerging futures Fund. The fund was created in response to a recognition that COVID-19 has changed the way that we live and we work, and that we need to invest in the imagination of communities to amplify their voices and stories towards new ideas, questions, and visions for the future. As Andy mentioned already, we know that it's often hard to look further ahead into the long-term future and, and to do that without being swayed by our own biases. We also know that there is huge inequity in the imagination space with the capability and capacity to think about and shape the future being dominated by experts in large institutions and companies far from the reality of those at the brink of crisis and those who find it hardest to find the space to think beyond tomorrow. So these are exactly the issues and opportunities we would like to explore in today's conversation. How might we resource, grow, and nurture the imagination capacity in communities and ensure they are equipped with the conditions they need to shape their own futures further upstream. Uh, I'd like to offer a very warm welcome to our panelists today who are each responsible for steering and stewarding imagination practices, futures and foresight in their communities. Uh, joining me today are Pupil Bisht. Um, Pupil is a multidisciplinary designer, futurist, and the founder of Decolonizing Futures Initiative, for which she won the inaugural Jose- Joseph Jaworski Next Generation Foresight Practitioners Award in 2018. Welcome, people. Um, also joining me is Jeff Mulgan. Jeff is Professor of Collective uh, Intelligence, Public Policy, and Social Innovation at UCL, University College London. He was formerly Chief Exec as Nesta and has held roles in UK government. We also have Jess Prendergast joining us. Hello, Jess. Um, Jess is one of the founding directors of uh, Onion Collective CIC with a background working in social research and economics and think tanks and consultancies. She works with community enterprise leaders to explore what a more connected form of economics could look like. We're also delighted to have Inua Ellens with us to bring us to a close later today with a performance of his new poem titled, Visceral, Necessary and Essential, which is responding to the themes of today's discussion. Inua is an award-winning poet, playwright and performer, graphic artist and designer. Welcome Inua and thank you for agreeing to um, take on this commission. We'll have uh, time at the end for questions from the audience. So as you hear some conversations today, do you have a think about um, any questions you'd like to ask? You can use the Q&A box for that. Um, and if you can be sort of specific, if you want a response from a specific panellist, definitely mention their name and I'll make sure to direct it to them. If you'd like to share your thoughts on Twitter, please use the hashtags hashtag RSA futures and hashtag emerging futures fund. But before we hear from our panelists, we're going to kick off with a short video featuring some of the projects funded by the emerging futures fund. So sit back and enjoy the short video.
2: I think we've got a problem in how we think about the future now. There are big majorities in many countries, including Britain, who think their children will be worse off than they are. I think we need to reinvigorate that shared social imagination because it's completely misleading to think that the way things are is the way they have to be. We have the power to shape the world around us and leave something better for our children and grandchildren. If there's one good thing has come out of the COVID crisis. It has reminded people you can do things completely differently, things which we were told were quite impossible, and we just don't have to accept the way things are as, uh, as
3: inevitable. Too often, we have people in offices, in boardrooms, making decisions about the lives of people that they've never experienced. It's really important to get the everyday person making decisions, or at least part of the um, conversation, to how we want to shape Things going forward. We need
4: diversity in imagination, and therefore I keep coming back to this idea of collective
5: imagining. We've started working in imagination just this year, really. It's been completely enlightening, actually, really powerful. Always you find new insights,
2: new creativity, and because what comes out of these exercises has had so many more brains, more ideas coming together, is much richer, much more compelling than anything which just comes from one person or one source.
4: It's something that has to be nurtured over a period of time. I think you, if it's nurtured, you start creating cross-pollinated networks.
3: It means invoking the curiosity, the imagination and the courage to build a community where those ideas can flourish and where people feel safe, whole and like they're part of something greater.
5: There is obviously a problem in this country, maybe in every country, with disillusionment with both the economic system and the political system. But until those in power of all kinds start to really listen deeply to the things that matter to people who are affected by that system, this disillusionment and frustration and anger will just continue. Every action that we take
4: today is shaping all our futures. And so I think The way we make our decisions, if we make them in more imaginative ways, we are likely to move towards a future that is perhaps more habitable, more equal and more just.
2: Over the next 20, 40, 50 years, we're gonna have to sort out climate change. We're gonna have to sort out dramatic aging. We're gonna have to learn to live with powerful artificial intelligence. If we don't strengthen, invest in our shared social imagination, it's really quite hard to see how. We will cope with all of these challenges and actually have a, a a good society.
4: Many people have realized afresh their own place in the world. I've seen so much more and explorations around our relationships with the more than human world. We should not lose that kind of moment of realization that we need to consider alternate way of living on this planet.
2: It's never easy to achieve change. But if you're answering a problem, which people recognize as a real problem, if you can tell a story about why the idea makes sense and can be implemented in in practice, then you will find it spreads for society which is constantly using its own collective intelligence to shape its own collective future. For me, that is the great promise of our time. I hope you all enjoyed that.
0: It was really great to hear snippets of some of your work and thoughts, Jess and Jeff. Um, So to kick us off, I I would like to invite each of you and Pupil as well um, to tell us briefly about the work you've been doing about collective imagination and community foresight and futures. And maybe uh, Pupil, you might want to start us off. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much, Jana. Um, hi, everyone.
6: I'm Popul. I'm a designer and a futurist uh, from India, but currently based in New York. And my practice is quite disciplinary actually, but the topic of today's discussion is really at the heart of most of the work that I do. So four years back when I, or five years back actually, when I started studying foresight, I was pursuing my master's in strategic foresight um, in Canada. And it is during that time that I realized that despite talking about futures always in plural, we are actually somehow subconsciously committed to building quite singular images of this time yet to come. Uh, And they're singular because in most of these images, we are continuously reproducing dominant ideas value systems, and by doing so intentionally or unintentionally, we're perpetuating the marginalization of those who do not fit um, those parameters, who do not fit that image. So I really wanted to address this glaring lack um, specifically in, in the methods that we use for anticipation and for imagining the future. And I wanted to design something that's actually shaped by non-Western values um, and make way for local philosophies um, or traditions that had so far been cast aside or that I found to be missing from the discourse. So I took that brief and I designed a novel method for foresight that's inspired by a unique, ancient technology for interactive storytelling called Cover, which is from Rajasthan, India. Um, and I really designed it with the hope to enable participatory, radical, transformative, collective futures thinking. So in 2018, I founded the Decolonizing Futures Initiative with the Cover method at its core. And I've been working directly with communities to envision their preferred futures. But outside of this initiative, Uh, The past one year, I was working as the creative lead and network weaver for the School of International Futures, Next Generation Foresight Practice, um, and really helping build a community, a global network of over 300 young futurists, representing 69 countries from around the world, doing that work with the ambition to democratize foresight by identifying emerging changemakers and really giving them a platform Uh, so that new perspectives on the future can begin to disrupt um, dominant thinking in the field in more tangible ways. And lastly, I'm also a founding member of Global Swarm, which is an internationally distributed team of futurists. We were commissioned um, in 2019 by Nesta to research and write a report on participatory futures methods. Uh, Hopefully we'll have time uh, today to talk a bit more about that work. Um, And as a group, we've continued to work um, in that space through gaming sessions, online courses, as a way to inspire both practitioners, but also commissioners of foresight work Uh, in governments and public sector, but also in corporate sector to really um, design more participatory futures engagement when when they're trying to innovate or when when they're making policies around critical issues that impact our world. So as you can see, I come to this topic from many different vantage points and really excited to be participating in this discussion.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. people. I think that's 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 really insightful and it's great to hear you talk about Gova and talk about, um, you know, new ways of knowing and new ways of, of thinking to really be able to shift us away from perpetuating some of the same biases. And also that links back to something that Andy mentioned in his opening um, remarks where he talked about, you know, frameworks, old frameworks of thinking will cause the same sort of issues. Um, exactly the same issues that we're trying to avoid. So, we really need to, to find different ways of thinking, different frameworks, different frames of mind, and different ways of knowing. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Jeff, um, can I invite you to come in and share some of your work in this area?
2: Well, thanks very so much, Joe. Yeah, I mean, I, I also got interested in this a few years ago, as the video showed, because I've, I was more and more struck how many people found it quite easy to picture ecological disaster not far ahead. Uh, And to the extent there was a a sort of picture of the future was very technology driven, partly because the tech world invests very heavily in trying to imagine where AI, robots, drones are heading. And people really struggle to picture a better society in 20, 30, 40 years time, better welfare state care, all these, these other things. And that seemed to me extraordinary. And when I looked at the history, actually we were in a different position to 50 or 100, 150 years ago, when there were actually, certainly in working class communities in countries like Britain, very strong traditions of thinking far ahead of utopian, radical imagination. And that had been hollowed out in recent years, leaving this situation where so many people expect their children to be worse off than they are. So one of the things I've been working on is try to, not to move from the diagnosis to prescription. Uh, In a week or two's time, I've got quite a big report coming out in Germany on what the social sciences and universities could be doing to actually almost rekindle their role in contributing to shared imagination of the future and design of the future. It's largely disappeared from universities and mainstream uh, disciplines. Uh, I've been looking at art. Uh, what exactly is the relationship between art and social imagination, which is quite complicated and that's perhaps a topic for uh, for uh, another day. And at the methods like the, the the EFF and the other methods we can take from fiction or design or collective imagination exercises which can help us picture really our options, let's say for elder care, you know what what is a plausible picture? of care for the elderly in 40 or 50 years' time, when many you know, you may be going into a care home. At the moment, there's, there's no place you can see that. There aren't exhibitions, there aren't galleries, there aren't sort of great national or city debates on, on that at all. And I guess what I've concluded very briefly, it's kind of obvious, is imagination does take a bit of work. You don't get great art or great music or great films just immediately. It takes a bit of intensive, serious effort to get compelling uh, good imagination. It has to be inclusive. There's incredible imbalances, not just between as well, the tech world and everyone else, but the futures world itself, if you look in India or China or the Gulf, is totally dominated by their own elites, you know, by the very educated, very urban, very rich, with almost no participation from uh, the relatively poor in shaping those images uh, of the future. And it's got to be in some ways, Uh, Attuned to complexity, to the systems we live in, which means not having perfect blueprints of the future, but allowing emergence and experiment and trying things out on our way way ahead. And my hope is through programs like this that in five or ten years' time, it's obvious that just as you know, a serious citizen of the world should have a sense of history: how did we get here? You know, the history of uh, wars and conflicts, empire, and so on. So should you have a picture of the road ahead, of a plausible 30, 50 or 100 years into the future, which isn't only a future of disaster.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I really love that um, sort of, you know, call to arms that we need to make sense of of our history before we're able to move towards imagining the future. And I I absolutely agree on that reflection that you know some of our older generations um, were, you know, it, it came more naturally to them to, to think longer term, to think about longer-term income security, housing security for their children, their grandchildren, etc. And we have moved to much more sort of short-termism um trends uh, more recently. Um, so thank you for that, and really looking out for your report um and thank you for all the field building that you're doing in that space. Um, and then last but not least, I will pass on
5: to Jess to share some. Of her work in this space. Thanks, Jo. Um, so, um, as Jo said at the beginning, I'm one of the directors of Onion Collective. Um, we're a community-centered social enterprise based down in a little town called Watch It in West Somerset. Um, and we work in what is, in the sort of current policy speak, called place-based systems change. Really what we do is try and make things happen that bring about um, positive shifts. And we do that locally, but with implications for a much wider and deeper impact. And, as part of a much wider movement that seeks to reimagine how the economy works or should work. And we've always had a community lens. We focus on gathering and relationships and connection and social capital. And we've also always championed, I think, um, the ways in which art and culture bind us together and keep us curious. We use creative practice as a means of involvement and as a way of unearthing desires and listening to possibilities. So kind of economics and culture, which often bedfellows, um, but probably should become uh, more so in the future. I think um, I think economics and culture are really siloed from one another, and I think at the same time, community is often put in another little slightly patronised corner, all on its own. Uh, and community is, and sort of uh, the place and time and people attachments which form community is regarded as gentle and fluffy and quite amateur, or worse, actually, as parochial and reactionary and backward looking. And kind of the opposite of the progress to which we are all told we should be aspiring. Um, But our work over more than a decade now has shown us over and over again that the very best, most inventive, relevant, often bravest ideas come from communities. Um, Though the value of those voices is often overlooked and the disenfranchised and those most negatively affected by the, the kind of prevailing system remain that way have very little access or voice. And our work is about changing that. Um, So as part of that effort during lockdown and with the support of the Emerging Futures Fund, we worked uh, with a brilliant group of practitioners called Moral Imaginations, and we undertook quite intensely for a week and then subsequently more gently over several months, a, a game changing journey, really, of helping people in our community to imagine what the next economy might look like and understanding the imperatives to which they wanted it to respond. And then from that thinking, helping people to generate creative work. So prose and poetry and art and writings, all about economics of all things. Um, And I... I honestly think it was the most powerful engagement process that I've ever been part of. And I, you know, I really live and breathe this stuff. We expected it to be hard. And we thought that when we asked people to come to do a week's worth of Zoom workshops on economics, um, they would run a mile, but they didn't. And we literally couldn't shut them up. And they produced some of the most heart wrenchingly beautiful, sometimes quite crushing, but also really hopeful work about how things could and need to change um, and those in turn have really deeply influenced our own writings, and our own thinking about the way the next economy might be run for the better and how the values of the matter in communities can be integral to that change. Um, those contributions will be published alongside um, our own work, hopefully in 2022. And I'll talk more about what we learned later, but hopefully that gives you a flavour of what we've been up to. Thanks, Joe.
0: Great. Thank you, Jess. And I know that some of the work that you're you're doing is really sort of the exception of, sort of some of the most cutting edge ways of really putting the community at the heart of, of, of collective imagination. So I would absolutely encourage everyone to check out uh, the Onion Collective and some of the some of the work that Jess mentioned. Um, Brilliant. Well, thank you all for sharing uh, the brilliant emergent and much needed work you're doing in this area. I'm going to warm us up with a few questions and then we'll open up to the audience. So um, if you're in the audience and you have any questions for the panel, do pop them in the Q&A and we'll select um, some of these to share with our panelists. So to kick off, obviously we recognize that there's a number of emerging uh, priorities. If we look at the sort of the socio-political economic landscape, on one hand, we can see investment around the Leveling Up agenda and community power, civil society features, and then on the other hand, uh, we've been through over a year of crisis response, um, and communities have been proactively at the front line um, in relation to that. So there's sort of these sort of longer-term ambitions and and levers from a political perspective but then the sort of the short-term response that we have seen increasingly from communities at the front line having to deal with that day-to-day within that context why do you think this work is needed what and what do you think is standing in the way of resourcing it Um, and i perhaps maybe um jeff or jess you might want to come in and, and share some of your thoughts on that you know why is this work needed and and what's standing in the way of, of it happening
2: more. Well, okay. I, mean, uh, I mean, Andy said why it's needed. If you don't have any ideas for the future, you know, you're not gonna be able to innovate. You're not gonna be able to respond to new problems like global pandemics or regulating artificial intelligence algorithms or or really working out how you move every home in the country to heat pumps, let's say, to take a few very practical examples. And I think it's a real problem that we don't have, There so were a menu of options Out there, I I was yesterday in Finland, which interestingly is a country which has, over the years, invested quite a bit in imagination. Its parliament has a committee of the future. It's relatively young female leaders. It's 35-year-old prime minister. You know, are are really thinking ahead to what is a zero-carbon welfare state with digital look like in a way there's no flavour of at all in Britain, where in Whitehall there's probably fewer people working on the future than there were any time of the last 50 or 60 years. There's been again a hollowing out of our, of our state capacity. Where it goes though is possibly interesting. So I'm just going to take one example. One almost symptom for me of lack of imagination was that anyone wrote a book about Radical politics, there'd always be a lot about the circular economy, which is good, and probably a universal basic income. Now, because of COVID, lots of places have implemented versions of a universal basic income. And so the debate has moved forward very fast. And there's now discussion in Scotland and Wales, at least, even if not so much in England, not about classic UBI, which slightly falls apart when you look at it, but about variants where you might have it for a certain number of years or you might give it to care leavers or you might use it in certain situations. Now that's exactly the kind of emergent, imaginative experimentation we need, but hadn't had for many decades on our welfare state, which was sort of grinding into (laughs) into the sand in a way. So, um, but that does then require investment of time and energy and creativity to work out which of those variants actually is is
0: desirable and plausible. Great, thank you, Jeff. And I think it connects back to something that people People you shared earlier around, you know, features are in the plural. There's multiple features and it's about having these conversations about what these diverse, future realities could look like and, and what different communities want their these realities to, to be and how do, how we invest in that. Uh, Jess, did you want to share any thoughts on that? Uh, why is this important now and what's standing in the way of supporting collective
5: community imagination? Yeah. Um, thanks, Joe. I mean I, I, I totally agree with Jeff on why why it's needed, but I think there are, I think there are probably a couple of things worth saying at the outset if we're going to talk about the context of leveling up and community power and what it feels like in these places. Um, Firstly, I think coming from a place that's apparently left behind in inverted commas, I really can't stand the term levelling up. With apologies to Andy and his new role. Um, Of course, it reflects this sort of genuine concern about inequality and belonging, but the need for levelling up feels quite pejorative, um, as does being called the left behind. And Both phrases, I think, have echoes of what is now quite an outdated vertical conceptualisation of countries as third world or developed or underdeveloped. And this kind of effect of highlighting what we lack and celebrating what others have gained as progress and often ignoring or totally downplaying the negative consequences of that progress uh, and some of the problems that we're now facing. And on the ground, it can feel quite insulting and quite demeaning and also quite disempowering. So I I also think it's possible that being left behind might turn out to be a blessing and, and we have been ignored or forgotten, but also to some extent, this means that we've been left alone by the prevailing system. And this means that there are places which are able to be a bit more boldly independent and a bit more innovative and have much more deeply embedded community values. So I don't really see these communities as trailing along at the back, um, but rather as places that kind of point, point the way forward where some of the pioneers of the next economy are emerging and where community and the values of compassion and solidarity and curiosity and these things which really underpin community remain really strong. And I think we saw that really clearly in COVID where strong communities were able to cooperate and innovate and be imaginative and provide solutions often much faster, much smarter, much, you know, at much lower cost than either the centralized state or the disconnected market could manage. And we got food and care and medicine and comfort out to the most vulnerable amongst us really, really quickly. Um, All of that said, the things standing in the way are many, clearly. Um, Firstly, the language that we use, as I've already talked about. Secondly, this gentle derision with which we treat community, which means we don't take it seriously, even though the voices we hear are intelligent and considered and uh, really inventive. And um, thirdly, as I guess is always mentioned in these calls, but never seems to be uh, moved very far, really ingrained power relations in the current system, And, you know, for me, that means this playing field doesn't need to be leveled up. It needs to be really tilted quite heavily in favour of more distributed, more attached, more inclusive forms of economic power that reflect a totally different perspective on what progress is. And otherwise, unless we have this kind of genuine desire to restructure that system, we're just going to stand around scratching our heads and and tinkering. Um, So I guess that's what what needs to change.
0: Great. Thank you, Jess. I think that's a that's a really important provocation you know being left behind is also about being left alone that's sort of what sat with me and you know thinking about what good looks like from whose perspective um and who gets to decide what good looks like um that's a that's a really important message um Um, My next question is specifically about, you know, the practice itself, the practice of collective um, imagination. We recognize that this is an emergent area of work and mission. So to make things as concrete as possible for our audience here today can you share maybe a practical example or method of how collective imagination and strategic uh, foresight could be developed as a practice in communities, you know, as something that they can come together to do often as a built-in capability that they can draw on as a shared power for shaping their futures. And I'm gonna maybe invite um, people to come in and share more about that tonight, because I know you touched on participatory futures um, as some of the work that you've been leading on more recently.
6: Yes, absolutely. Um, So the report that I was talking about, it's called Our Futures. It was commissioned by Nesta. Published, it's online, it's open, so anyone can download it and read it. And I think it's one of the first sort of comprehensive practical guides on participatory futures. Um, So I highly recommend that our audience checks it out. Um, And you will see in that guide that we actually, we scan more than 400 cases or case studies of participatory futures from around the world. And all of that is to say is that while there are certain patterns and good practices and things that we can learn from it, this work has to begin by acknowledging that there is no uh, one-size-fits-all future, and therefore there cannot be one-size-fits-all method to envisioning that future. Uh, it always has to be designed to specific contexts and really respecting the 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 local conditions that we're aiming to address. But um, something that might be helpful for our discussion is we found out through that research that there are almost these five key roles that participatory futures um, exercise can, um, uh, you know, fulfill in a traditional strategic strategic or decision-making process. So there's one uh, which is around mapping horizons. We can use these practices to create shared purposes, to chart pathways forward towards desired futures, to find ways to act together, and also a great way of testing ideas in the present. And then there are different natures of engagement around participation that you can design. There are some that um, are designed around play. So creating a safe space uh, for people to try out different ideas about the future, Um, other ways to immerse people in scenarios that seem very different from where they are in the present. and A lot of times that is a big barrier um, that gets in the way of people being able to engage with the future in in meaningful uh, ways. Sensing the future is another activity that's done brilliantly when done collectively. Um, Creating different visions of the future and also deliberating on the processes. But I think Andy or, or Jeff spoke about India, and actually one of my favorite examples of party story futures from that research was from India, uh, and it was the world's first radio reality show that was targeted at rural audiences, and it was um, done through community radio in Bundelkhand, which is a region in India which is Uh, one of the most climate sensitive regions and almost 90% of the population depends on farming. So they used the existing technology of community radio that had a reach to over 200 villages to really engage more than 25,000 farming families in that region and explore ways in which they could uh, adapt to the climate change, adapt their practices to the climate change, and also use that reality show format to, you know, connect experts that brought that scientific understanding around the purpose with local communities that were the experts of their conditions. Um, So I think All of that is to say is that oftentimes a lot of this work, we get quite distracted by new technologies and the possibilities of those technologies. It's important to remind ourselves that technologies are only means to an end. And a lot of times, um, you know, radio is an ancient technology now in 2021, but it turned out to be super effective in this context. And so a lesson to learn from there is, for these kind of engagements to be successful, you have to design to meet people where they are, instead of always putting the burden of participation on them and, and trying to invite them into um, you know, institutions that are um, steeped in power dynamics that are not conducive to what we're trying to achieve here.
0: Thank you so much, people. Um, I think that's really powerful, you know, meeting people where they are, Um, rather than expecting them to come to where where power sits. Um, I wanted to maybe invite you, Jess, to share um, what that looks like in practice for you and some of the work that you have done. Um, And I suppose just to build on that question, um, you know, is this work different to... So community deliberation approaches, things like citizen assemblies that we've seen increasingly um, develop over the last few years to community consultations and some of these more traditional ways of engaging with communities. Is
5: it different to that work and how is it different? Um, Thanks, Jo. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's sort of start at the end. I think it's really very different. Um, It's a much deeper, much more intensive process. I think it's not easy to talk about. A practical example or method that would work everywhere as has just been mentioned you know that, and there also isn't a quick fix like it's really important to say that imagination practice is serious and professional and complex and just like the craft of community and connectorship is long and it's deep and it's hard work and it needs time and resourcing and commitment it's you know it's not an easy policy initiative to reimagine the whole future and how it could be and involve lots of different people in it of course it's not easy or so we'd be we'd all be there Um, and it needs this radical shift in agency and power. Um, I think the process that we used with moral imaginations was really revelatory but it was also hard and hard for those people involved, so it was emotionally quite taxing and it awakened fears as much as as hopes and it was quite spiritual, again not something (laughs) very often associated with economic thinking, Um, but it was really worth it and it helped people not just process their own ideas but rethink what was possible and it Built friendships and understanding of difference and it created shared purpose and values It did all of these other things as well as helping us to think about what was needed um I think there are a, a few ways of thinking about how you do that everywhere um here just in what we've just opened East Key which um uh, Phoebe who, who ran our moral imaginations process generously uh, described to us as imagination in practice and we're now looking at how to explore what having a kind of imaginarium or a temple of imagination would look like you know what if there was a safe place where people could come together and dream about different futures in every town or in every parish just like there are actually places of worship in most of those places places for conversation and curiosity and connection and ideas and hope again not easy or quick or cheap but tangible and definitely possible with some imagination and I think the other thing that People do lots of this thinking about what if only we had a place where particularly young people could come together and think about and nurture ideas and creativity and imagination. If only we could find a way to do that. Like we've got a school system. We've got children with brilliant teachers who want to dream in every, you know, in every town and village and city in this country. And we very easily move the curriculum to being about grammar and about maths and very strictly about certain things. And we could just as easily move it to being about imagination and creativity. So I think it's just, it's willpower. It's not that there isn't the capacity or the capability or the resourcing, It's there's just got to be a desire to shift it into the right place.
0: Great. Thank you, Jess. And I think that's that's a really important reminder that this is very deep, personal work, and it's very emotive for uh, people to be thinking about their futures. Their existence relies on it. The existence of their future generations. Um, and it's it's great to connect it back to you know our learning infrastructure and how we learn and how we grow and develop to create capacity um, in ourselves and in others uh, for imagination. Um, I'm gonna um, ask one more question. Um, And then we'll open up the floor um, to the audience. Maybe, uh, Jeff, um, from your perspective, what is one thing that cultural um, and or policy leaders could start doing differently tomorrow, either at local or national level, to create the right conditions um, for this work, to create the right conditions to build capability and capacity for communities to shape their futures? And if we did that, um, what might the world look like?
2: Well, maybe I could just build on what Jess just said. I think we've now got about three thousand museums in this country, uh, wonderful repositories of the past of absolutely everything, probably from you know paper clips to um, armies. Now, why not have a few places which curate our emerging shared pictures of what could be in the future? We have some traditions of, sort of doing that in architecture, and actually large-scale participation in future choices for physical developments in cities, but almost nothing for the invisible <laughs> designs of our, of our lives and our societies, which are often more important than the visible things. And so we had those places and they became also centres for using the methods. I'm mean, i I'm very keen on a whole series of methods of extension and inversion and grafting and combination where you actually get a different menu of options. I think it does involve maths as well as imagination. You know, we need science involved any imagination of future cities or care or education 30, 40 years ago. It, in the future has to involve a lot of technology and science and expertise, as well as the input and the, 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 the agency of who have to live in those, uh, those worlds. But um, a physical and virtual presence for our shared imagination would be a really good starting point. As I say, in my little town, of Luton, which is raining very heavily right now, you know, why couldn't we have, we we have nowhere at the moment where I can go and see what people are thinking about where, where, as I say, our elder care, our primary schools, our parks could be in half a century's time. We've got fantastic displays of, you know, 19th century hats, (laughs) but nothing of 21st century possibilities.
0: Amazing. Um, yeah, you know, how do we make the, the invisible visible and how do we use the, you know, the, our cultural assets, museums and a lot of these creative spaces as as infrastructure um, to, to create more focus around this work. Thank you, Jeff. Right. I'm going to um, take questions from the audience and I'll kick us off um, for with a question that's actually directed to all of you. So feel free to come in if you would like to answer that. What is needed in terms of policy and commissioning for this kind of work to take root and to grow?
6: Um, I can respond to that um, at a slightly, I think what is needed first and foremost is a mindset change and it might seem small, but it's actually the first place where we get stuck. But if we're able to really accept that futures for all cannot be imagined and should not be imagined by a few, a a huge impact can be created um, in this space unless if we, Unless we're able to accept that and embrace that philosophy, we're going to keep on running around in circles. And I'm itching to, I'm sorry, but I'm itching to respond to what Jeff said about museums. I think it's important to also acknowledge, especially because most of the audience is from UK, is that museums actually have our institutions that uphold some of the kind of outdated power dynamics that we don't need in the present and should not carry into the future or be very cautious about that. What the world needs today is new narratives that have the power to break the spell of old ones that not only got us here but are keeping us stuck and those narratives we don't just have to change what the who, what the story is, who it is about, but also who gets to imagine the story, but also who gets to tell it. So if we are, I think museums for the future are an incredible idea, but we really have to make sure that it's not, again, few people who are um, telling these stories and, and presenting these artifacts, right? How do we truly redistribute that power? And coming back to... Um, the policymaking space, I think traditionally governments have always seen their citizens as beneficiaries. And, and I really believe when we think of people or citizens like that, we really render them powerless, which is an illusion. People and communities in a democracy, in a healthy democracy are very, very powerful. And therefore governments need to start seeing them as strong partners with whom they're creating the future, co-creating the future in real time. Future is not an inevitable predetermined destination that we're just trying to uh, discover and reach. It's it's really a place that we're co-creating through the actions in the present. So that mindset shift is needed. And we also need to start seeing the future itself as, as a global common.
0: Thank you so much, um, people. I think that, that mindset shifts um is absolutely key uh jeff or jess would you like to add any thoughts to that on uh what you know what needs to change from a policy and commissioning
5: perspective to root this work um shall i come in yeah i think um thanks jeff um i think it sort of calls back a bit to what andy was saying at the beginning about um short-termism and long-termism and the problems with with policy and commissioning and funders often being stuck in a quite short-term uh, work. Whereas this kind of work, which is really about, you know, reconceiving how we live in the world and different ways of being is, is long-term. So we need an investment in that kind of connectorship process. We need an investment in imagination work. We need a kind of investment in the unknown and being totally comfortable with that. Um, we need more investment in culture, of course. Sort of all of which is just an investment in bravery within our communities, I guess. Um, but that's hard for funders, hard for policymakers, very hard for politicians to do. Um, and so, so we kind of need some bravery from them alongside expecting the bravery in the places which which are. Um, you know, most struggling with the system, and I think if we can we can get a bit more of that, and we can get some kind of really innovative funding and some innovative commissioning that doesn't just think about the short term, we'd start to really um, to really see some beautiful ideas coming forward and some and some really exciting ones.
0: Great, thank you, Jess. Jeff, do you want to add
5: to that? Well,
2: it, it's such a big question. This is all the future. It would be surprising if there was one answer. And I think one has to break it down. I think there's a role for civil society, the sort of stuff Emerging Futures has been doing. There's a role for schools, has been said. This should be part of children's school experience at some point to do some future shaping. There's definitely a role for universities, which have vacated this role in the past. They did much more. In social imagination than they do now, and there's lots of reasons for that. Political parties, again, in some periods, have been real pioneers. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Governments, as I said, some like the Scandinavian, Singapore, actually invest a lot in this in sort of futures work, uh, and the media is the other player. You know, it's weird that there is no TV or film. On the future which isn't basically dystopian so you know how do let's challenge our writers our creatives to actually picture plausible uh, non-black mirror futures where we might actually want to live they do a brilliant job at scaring us about the future why not help us a little bit to have the sense of agency uh, that the others have been talking about
0: great thank you jeff i think that's um you've, you've summarized that perfectly you know we do need uh, a constellation of different institutions and different key stakeholder groups to play their part in this, from schools and universities, civil society, political parties, and the media. Um, I'm gonna take one more question uh, from the audience, and there's a great one uh, from Patrick. Um, So Patrick asks, given that people can only imagine a future when their basic needs are met, um, how are sort of ordinary people in the UK, especially in deprived areas like the North East, how are they meant to find time, energy, and space to think creatively about the future? I, I think we've talked a lot about sort of capacity at different levels of the system, but I think that, that, sounds, that sounds like a really good um, point to unpack around the capacity within communities who are really at, that, um, at the pressures of the day-to-day at the frontline.
6: Um, I can respond to this, but obviously my experience um, is is more on the communities that I've worked with in India, in Africa, some parts of Canada as well. Um, And I think I also went to field um, thinking this, and it was a myth that was busted for me through my practice. Actually, communities that have been historically marginalized, um, and every day is almost a fight for survival for them, They, if they did not have the imagination to imagine a better tomorrow for themselves, they would not be doing the kind of incredible work and they would not be in possession of the kind of resilience that they have. So at least in the context of the communities that I've worked with, um, I have found that oftentimes a lot of my participants would say that... Um, you know, they were I was always met with the reaction of, oh, nobody's really asked us before what we want the future to be like, but that was more a case of of process and lack of spaces rather than them not having anything to say or contribute to it. Because when you facilitate the right kind of processes and foster the right kind of space, safe spaces, you the kind of imaginative stories and visions that come out of that, that's where real. Radical thinking is actually um, at so I have been very pleasantly surprised uh, in my own practice.
0: Great, thank you, Pipo. And Jess, do you want to add to that?
5: Yeah, I mean, I I just really want to echo um, what's been said. I mean, in in this country, you know, as I said, we're we're you know we're one of these places which is apparently left behind and you know <laughs> at the very bottom of the heap, and we have the lowest social mobility in the whole country in West Somerset. And the people who got involved in this process weren't a kind of middle-class elite with some, with some spare time when they weren't golfing. This was a, a really diverse group of people from within a community. And the ideas and the beliefs and the hopes and the things that they talked about were extraordinary and powerful. And in many ways, the process of being involved in the imagination process and the connections that they made was part of... Meeting their basic needs, you know, it was friendship and connection and realization that other people believed the same as them and that they weren't alone. and And I think I think it's it's that premise that we need to we need to stop with. We can't be saying this is only if you've got enough spare time or if you've already made it in some way. It's it's the other voices that we need and 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 that have kind of more to say, if anything. Um, yeah, so I so, so I'd just totally, totally echo what's been said and, and think that applies just as well here.
2: And can I just yeah. say that there was not long ago that actually a bunch of people from various tribal communities in India, Adivasis, uh, were actually brought to Britain to inspire poor communities in Britain not to be so fatalistic and assume... <laughs> couldn't shape their future so you know that the patterns are much more interesting and complex and as i said 19th century working-class communities right across the uk had rich traditions of thinking about the the, the long-term future and they were much poorer than we are today with our electricity and tv and so on
0: absolutely thank you all so much um that's a i think that's a unanimous message that you know there is untapped energy there is latent energy and potential within communities. Um, We just need to find the right way to work with them to surface that. Um, Thank you all so much. I know we can discuss this. It's a really rich conversation and and we can discuss this for much longer, but this is all the time we have for uh, questions. Um, I'm now going to ask each of you to close with a provocation. So starting with imagine if, what is one question? or provocation that you want to leave uh, the audience with? And maybe um, people you might want to start first.
6: Sure, um, okay. I'm gonna keep this very practical, things that people can <laughs> do more. Um, So really imagine if um, the initial input into a foresight futures thinking project or strategic planning project was not just a cold deck of trends or signals, but really the lived embodied experiences of people who are going to themselves be stakeholders and ancestors of these futures. And more specifically, imagine if young people were no longer passive recipients of someone else's vision, but the proactive shapers of an inclusive and sustainable future on our planet.
0: Thank you, people. Uh, Jeff, what would be your imagine if provocation?
2: I'd agree with all that just said. I mean, I I like very simple imagine ifs. So, for example, uh, and I think this has been moved forward by COVID imagine if in your community or your country, mental health was taken as seriously as physical health, and we had a comparable infrastructure of roles and people and buildings and attention and so on. You know, just think about that 20 or 30 years into the future. That's a plausible what if at the family level, the town, and the nation.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Jeff. And Jess, what would be your imagine if?
5: Thank you. Um, I think um, hearing people describing their alternative futures is really like the first step in recognizing that better is possible. And when asked to imagine what that most might be, most people describe really similar things and they, they want a greater connection to nature. They want human activity that doesn't harm the planet. They want greater togetherness and spaces to meet so that no one is lonely. And they want decision-making systems that include them. And over and over again, people yearn for and express these some version of these four relatively simple things. So I think my imagine is if, is just imagine if we actually listened to them.
0: Wonderful. Thank you all for these, what I would describe as very paradigm-shifting provocations. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Andy, I'd love to come back to you to ask you if you have any closing remarks, having sort of listened in to this uh, rich conversation.
1: Well, just very briefly, uh, Joe, just to to thank everyone um, for offering up such incredibly Rich and inspiring, food for thought. Um, certainly for me, in in all of my roles, um, I'm going to take away some some big learnings from how to think about approach, uh, how to approach that. And I think building on a lot of what I heard, um, if I had a provocation, if I had a, an imagine if, um, it would be imagine if imagination was actually something that we saw as being a self standing discipline in its own right, one that perhaps became a fixture uh, in each of our schools as part of the curic- curriculum, something which was overtly and necessarily uh, cross-disciplinary and its focus, melding um, the arts and humanities, the social sciences, uh, and the natural sciences. That for me would be a Uh, a huge shift and something I think that today suggests is kind of well within our compass.
0: Absolutely, thank you Andy and thank you all uh, so much for sharing your time with us today. Um, It's my great pleasure now as we close the event to hand over to Inua Ellens um, to share his performance of Visceral, Necessary and Essential. Um, So audience please do stick with us. as Inua shares um, his poem, and then we'll, we'll close with some um, closing remarks and key links to some of the work that we've been talking about today. Over to you, Inouye.
3: Um, It's been really fascinating listening to the conversations and it's great to be here with such a, a, a distinguished panel. And, um, and I hope my poem contributes and echoes and buttresses some of the notions and ideas shared. Um, visceral, necessary and essential after Lauren Whitehead. Working the 8 to 2 a.m. shift, staggering home in the thick dark under the teetering moon, tottering through ghosted high streets almost every day of the week, dragging her tattered backpack and cheap uniform streaked with poorly mixed cocktails, Lyndon was already on the edge. When Florian Frustrated at a night spent stomaching insults from colleagues who had sent him home to work long into the early hours, cursing all his skipped meals for the bone-thin sheen peeking through his skin, missed the front wheel of his bike striking Linden's bag, and the anger it flared in her boiled through to the following morning when the same bike blintered from the courtyard, full of small hills of cigarette stubs beside a smoking thump another lit and him set to tip the hills, and the smouldering stub in his hand, as stubborn as his heart, as his stupid pride for the youth it spent digging from coal mines the black heart of this country that ignores his contribution, denies him the respect he believes is owed from everyone, even Lyndon, who stands, arms akimbo, demanding he gather up his stubs so startled is she by Tom's vicious response, she calls to Belle, who is head down and deep in her headphones, folded into the song and circling her lonely world. She doesn't hear how desperate Lyndon is. The silver fear line in the storm cloud of her voice is lost to Belle, who is sad and slipping down the elevator as Mrs. Adeami climbs the stairs up and onto the courtyard parched as high noon to a gunfight, and Tom and Lyndon are good to shoot. But Mrs. Adeamy, calm as an afterstorm, limbs still heavy from her illicit cleaning job, a dust-feathering woman, a filth flushing one, makes theft work of sweeping Lyndon away from Tom's frothing jaws and into the four walls of her apartment, where Lyndon curses her for not minding her business, for minding it too much. It could be any block, in any town, in any city, anywhere in the world, oscillating between love and all-out war, chaos and order, connection and deepening fractures. But we'll focus on this one as the world blurs behind, Great tides pitch and roll in tumbling waves, climates change, wages freeze, mass closures, walkouts, strikes, protests, scandals, births, death, marriages. They are already overworked by each day's white knuckle drumming on all their soft hours. slow slowing limbs, Florian's furrowed forehead, Tom's stiff lip, Bell's nervous tick, and Mrs. Adea needs everything. And just when you wish for them a break in such onslaught, a calm in stiff storms, on comes a novel virus, vicious, ravenous, job losses, lockdown, and lumbering from this enforced limbo are the true and focused fears of what it is to come next, how to live and why, what matters and what doesn't, and how we survive. It is easy to assume the laws that will govern them, the sprawling policies, the belching bureaucratic beast of it will hang above as if an iron mammoth, an albatross. And it is best not to consult, best not to bother, best not to ask. But who is best poised to note the mammoth span of its iron wings? Who best knows what is covered and what isn't, where the true needs are, what hungers will be? Who is best to imagine the future than those who toil its soil? How could they not be visceral, necessary, essential? Thank you. Thank
0: you so much, um, Inua, for leaving us with such powerful and moving words. Thank you. For those of you watching live, thank you for joining us today. You'll find links in the chat box to delve deeper into a number of things we've talked about today. Firstly, the Emerging Futures Fund and the projects that uh, the fund funded. Um, Secondly, the RSA's own 2020s crises and change work, which was funded by the Emerging Futures Fund, bringing to life the voices of communities around the UK about their past, present and future aspirations. Also the inspirational work of our speakers, Jeff, Jess and Pupil. And finally, the Emerging Futures Fund playbook drawing together together a range of methods and approaches for collective imagination, community foresight, some of which uh, we we shared and discussed today. Finally, we would love to hear um, about you and how you and your communities are doing this kind of work. So please, please do share thoughts, ideas and stories using um, hashtag RSA futures and hashtag emerging futures fund. Thank you all again for joining and thank you to our panelists and to Inua. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.